If you have your Bible today, open it, please, to the Old Testament and find the book of Esther. Find the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. This little book only has 10 chapters. You can easily read it in less than an hour. I did this last night before I went to bed. Even though I had been studying it all week, I just said, I want to read this book from beginning to end before I go to bed tonight. It is a fascinating book. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book is that the name of God is absent. It is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Think about that, an entire book of the Bible, and yet the name of God is never mentioned. We read the entire book, and we don't see God's name, but I'll tell you what we do see. We see God's hand. We see God's hand of providence, God's hand of protection, God's hand of provision. We see the hand of God working behind the scenes of a very dangerous situation that was taking place in Persia many, many years ago. And in the book Book of Esther and from the book of Esther, we learn how to deal with a crisis. And that's the title of the message today, how to handle a crisis, how to deal with a crisis. Now, we know what a crisis is. A crisis is a time of great difficulty or trouble or danger. It's, it's, it's intense suffering that we might be going through. And I would say today that many here, or at least some here, and probably those watching at home today, at least in some cases, would say, John, this is a timely message for me because my family and I now, we're going through a crisis. We're going through something very difficult in our lives. Well, as we just walk right through the book of Esther today, we're going to learn how to deal with a crisis in the right way. Now, there's several things I want to say. If you have your bulletin, it'll be an easy little sermon to take notes on and just to jot some thoughts down. But the first thing I want to say about a crisis today is simply this. Not everything in life is a crisis but some things are. Not everything is, some things are. You know, some people you talk to them and it's like they just think everything is a crisis. Every day is a crisis. And, and they just, it's kind of like they cry wolf. They just have made everything a crisis so much so that when they get in a real crisis, Maybe when they reach out for help, people kind of ignore them because they just think, well, you've been saying everything was a crisis, but, but everything's not a crisis. Uh, a flat tire is not a crisis. A cavity is not a crisis. A leaky roof is not a crisis. It's, those things are not crises. Now, when they closed Luby's down on Center Street, that was a crisis, I thought so. <laughs> Uh, because now I have to drive clear across town to get to my favorite cafeteria. Well, but seriously, that's not, that's not a crisis. That's an inconvenience, as these other things I have mentioned are. They're not crises. They're, they're an inconvenience. The fact is, life only has a very few crises. A serious illness, that's a crisis. The death of a loved one, that's a crisis. The loss of a job, that's a crisis. Not having enough money to pay the bills, that's a crisis. We've seen on the news this last week, as gas prices are going up, as food prices are going up, there are many who are now having to make the decision, do I put gas in my car or do I put food on the table for the family? Now, there's some here today, in fact, maybe, maybe the majority here today who would say, well, you know, I have noticed the prices going up of both of those things and and I hate that, and, but the fact is it hasn't really changed my lifestyle. I'm still filling up the car, and I'm still buying whatever I want to eat. But there are others here today, and maybe a good number of these, who would say, no, I'm kind of like those you saw on the news. I, I'm having to decide, do I fill the tank up all the way? And if I do, will I have enough money 
to buy food for the family. That's a crisis. What's happening in Ukraine is a crisis. That's not an inconvenience. That's a crisis. That's not a cavity. That's not a flat tire. That's not a leaky roof. That is a crisis. I was talking to a friend last week who lives in America, and yet his girlfriend lives in Ukraine. And he was telling me about the the situation from her perspective and from her parents' situation. And he sent me a picture of his girlfriend's apartment. And I want you to look at this. This is her apartment building that was recently hit. And he had told her before that happened, he said, you've got to get out of there. And she reluctantly left. But that was a picture of the apartment. And then we've all seen probably this picture or a similar picture Millions, hundreds of thousands, millions trying to get on a train to get out of the country of Ukraine to try to uh, get away from these missiles and bombs and all the things, the attack that is coming there. What I'm saying is that is a crisis. And many of the things that we go through in our life, we say, man, this is a crisis. The sky is falling. Sky's not falling. Leaky roof can be fixed. Flat tire can be fixed. A cavity can be filled. These things are not crises. What I've mentioned there, that is a crisis. Now, in the book of Esther, we read about a true, true crisis. It's similar, not exactly the same, but it's similar to what's happening in Ukraine. Now, I want to kind of give you the, the cliff notes, the, the, the abbreviated version of what's going on in the book of Esther. As you know, in about 587, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian army into Israel, totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned down and destroyed the temple, and carried away the majority of those Jewish people to Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. They were there under the judgment of God. God had allowed that to happen because they had been disobedient to him. And so there they are in Babylon. Well, time goes by and the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And so towards the end of those 70 years, now it's the Persians, not the Babylonians, who are ruling the world. Back then, if you were the dominant country, you ruled the world. We see that with the Assyrians, they ruled the world. Then the Babylonians and then the Persians, they ruled the world. And so now the children of Israel are in the same location. They're just under the control of a different regime. The king now of the Persians was a man named Ahasuerus. He also went by Xerxes I, and uh, Ahasuerus decided to throw a big celebration, a feast, a party there in his kingdom, and the party lasted for a long, long time. Well, his wife, the queen, was named Vashti, and Vashti was a beautiful lady. And so on one day, the king sent word to his to the queen and said, have her to come to the feast, to come to this celebration. I want everybody in the kingdom to see how beautiful she is. Well, Vashti heard that word that that came to her, and yet she didn't want to do that. She didn't want her beauty to be exploited or in any way cheapened, and so she refused to show up for the feast. Well, when that happened, it created all kinds of problems, and the bottom line is she was dethroned. She was removed from being the queen, and so now King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, has to find a new queen for the kingdom. And so what happens, we read about it in the book, an extended beauty contest takes place, and all these beautiful young girls are put through a process of beautification and purification, and they appear before the king, and the short of it is a young girl named Esther was selected to replace Vashti as the queen of Persia. Esther was a Jewish girl. She had lived in uh, this part in what was Babylon, now Persia, all of her life. Her 
parents, her grandparents had been taken into captivity when she, before she was ever born. In fact, when she was young, her mom and dad both died. And so she was raised by her older cousin named Mordecai, a Jewish man who kind of served more like an uncle to her, but technically he was an older cousin. And so Mordecai and Esther, they're there in Persia, and Esther's chosen now to be the queen, and Mordecai is advising her and telling her what to do. Well, about this time, King Xerxes appoints a man named Haman, H-A-M-A-N, to be his right-hand man. He's the number two guy in control of the whole world, really. And the king makes a decree that everybody in the kingdom has to bow down and worship Haman. And they do. Everybody does that. When Haman comes by, people bow down, they worship, and so on, with the exception of Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jewish man. He was a follower of God, and he's thinking to himself, I'm not bowing down to Haman or anybody else. I'm going to worship God. Well, when Haman found out about the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him, in fact, he saw it. Haman goes by, and Mordecai refused to bow down. It infuriated Haman. And so Haman goes to the king, and Haman says to the king, King, there's a man in the kingdom who's not obeying your order. You've made an, a decree, an edict, that everyone should bow down and worship me. And king, it's, it's really not about me. It's about your order. We've got a man who's not doing what you told him to do, and I think this man should be killed. The king said, I agree 100%. Haman said, but it's not just this man who should be killed. I believe all of his people should be killed. He's a Jewish man, and we have in our kingdom many Jewish people. And I think what we need to do is to destroy all of them, lest they learn from his example and rebel against you. In fact, the, Haman actually said to, to uh, the king, these people are already rebelling against you, which was a lie. That wasn't true at all. So the king made a decree that not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people in the, in the kingdom, all, I mean, this spread out all over the world, that they would all be killed. And so they got some, what we would call dice, what they called lots, and they cast the uh, die, they, they rolled the lots, and a particular month was chosen, a particular day was chosen. On the 13th day of a particular month, all the Jews in the kingdom would be exterminated. They would all be killed. Now, that is a crisis. Here are these people, and their lives are all on the line, and the date has already been established when the king has decreed and commanded that they all be killed. They were in a crisis. Now, what do you do when you're in a true crisis like that? Well, here would be something we learned from the book of uh, Esther, and we'll see this in just a moment. Let your crisis lead to cries of help. Let your crisis lead to cries of help. Many times we get in a tough spot. We get in a tight situation. We even get in a crisis. And instead of crying out to God for help, we complain, we criticize, we get bitter and angry and mad. No, let your crisis lead to cries of help. Now, you're in Esther. Go back to chapter number, th or go to chapter number three. And let's begin looking in verse number five because I want you to see some of what I've just described. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And this is the point. He goes to the king, the king agrees, and the command, the edict, the decree is given, exterminate all the Jewish people. It was the Holocaust before Hitler's Holocaust. At least it was an attempted and planned Holocaust. So in chapter number four, we find, now Esther is the queen, so she's in the palace, Mordecai is a nobody at this moment, so he's kind of down in what we would call the courtyard of the palace. He's outside. Nobody really knows who he is. And yet, Mordecai is communicating with Esther in the palace. There's like a go-between. There were people who would go back and forth and deliver the message from Mordecai to Esther. And Mordecai said to one of these people, tell Esther that she needs to go and appear before the king and plead and beg him to change his mind and spare the Jewish people. So Esther gets this word and Esther sends back word to Mordecai. She says, tell Mordecai that I can't do that because the king has another decree. And here was the thing about the the decree of the Medes and the Persians. Once they wrote a law, that law could never be changed. That's why sometimes you hear the expression, the law of the Medes and the Persians. In other words, once a decision is made, you can never unmake the decision. And so the king had another decree, and it was this. Anyone who comes into my presence without first being summoned, and the way he would summon the people, if he wanted them in their presence, he would lift up his golden scepter. And if he lifted that up and made eye contact with you, that was his way of saying, you can come into my presence. But unless he did that, you were not welcomed into his presence. And if you came into the presence of the king, you would be killed. And so Esther said, tell Mordecai, I can't do that. If I go into the, he has, she said, he hasn't called for me in 30 days, maybe more than 30 days. And so I can't do that. And so Mordecai sends back word to Esther said, tell Esther, you have to do that. God has put you in this position for such a time as this. And if you don't speak up on behalf of the Jewish people, somebody will. You'll be destroyed, but God's going to spare his people. So let, let's just, let me let you see this, what I'm trying to describe in verse 13 of chapter 4. Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan or Susa, that's the capital of Persia, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink, for three days, day or night. In January, when we do the three-day media fast, I get the three days from this passage of Scripture right here. Esther proclaimed a three-day fast. That was not a media fast. They didn't have media. But they were fasting from from food, and no food for three days, and day, day or night. And then Esther said, my maids and I will fast likewise. And so what did Esther do when she got in this crisis? She needed to go to the king to beg for his mercy that even though he couldn't change the law, he could write a new law that would trump uh, and overcome that law, but she knew she couldn't go in there 
uh, unless he summoned her. And so she calls a three-day time of prayer and fasting. And she's praying. And her maids are fasting. And Mordecai's fasting. And all the Jewish people in the area, they find out about this. Everybody's fasting. God, please give Esther favor. Please, God, somehow, some way, have the king to raise his scepter and to invite her into his presence so that she... Well, and sure enough, that's what happened. In time, uh, after these three days, the king raised the scepter, and he invited Esther to come into his presence, and she persuaded him to write a new law, and we're going to see about that in a moment. But the point I'm making here is, in her crisis, and in not only her crisis, but the crisis of all the people, what did Esther do? She prayed, and she cried for help. Now, I want to say this, and I wish I could spend a lot more time on this today. We've got more of this book to cover. If you're in a crisis today, something is happening in your life, in, in your family situation, the best thing that you could do every day would be to set aside a specified amount of time where you get before God and where you pour out your heart to God in prayer. I was reading yesterday in Acts chapter 3, in the very first verse, it says, Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. They went to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray. I want to ask you today, do you have an hour of prayer? In your daily routine, in your daily schedule, do you have an hour of prayer? Do you have a half hour of prayer? Do you have any time? Well, if you're in a crisis, you need to have a specified amount of time. I would recommend 30 minutes, maybe longer, but I would certainly recommend 30 minutes where you get in the presence of God and where you just pour out your heart to God about this crisis and where you pray for divine intervention, for deliverance, for salvation, for rescue, for whatever it is you need, for whatever it is your family member needs, and let your crisis lead to cries for help. Now, I want to show you a verse in Proverbs. We're studying on and off on Sunday mornings some of the great topics in the book of Proverbs. This is one of my favorite verses, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Let's say that together. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. How do we run to God? In prayer. And so I'm encouraging you, especially if you're in a crisis, set aside some time for prayer. Call on God. Maybe time of fasting. Maybe intensified praying. Intensified searching, seeking after God. And he will always honor that. Now, the next thing I would say. What are we going to do? We're going to let our crisis lead to cries for help. Then follow this. We're going to let our cries for help lead for complete, lead to complete confidence in God. Now watch this. Regardless of the outcome. Regardless of the outcome. Now look back in chapter number four, because Esther's thinking, man, if I go stand before the king with him not calling for me, I'm going to, my life could probably be taken. Look at the very end of verse 16. Esther said, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What did she say? She said, you know what? I'm going to spend three days in prayer. I'm going to put this in God's hand. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And I'm going to move forward by faith. I'm going to trust God to make a way for me where there is no way. I'm going to plan on going into the king's presence, even if he doesn't summon me. Now, thankfully, he did summon her, but she was going in anyway. What was she saying? She was saying, I've prayed about it. I've put it in God's hands. 
and I have complete confidence in God. Now watch this. And she was saying, my faith in God is, has absolutely nothing to do with how this whole situation turns out. You know, there are many people who have lost their faith and many people who've walked away from the church and many people who don't do anything, have anything to do with God anymore. And the reason is back there somewhere, they had a crisis and they talked to somebody or they got it in their mind that if they would just pray about it and believe hard enough about it, that God would answer their prayer the way they were praying it. And so what did they do? Maybe they had a disease. Maybe they had cancer. Maybe their family member or friend had cancer. And they prayed for healing. And somebody said to them, now we're going to pray for healing. And we're going to believe for healing. And we're going to trust God for healing. And we believe that God's going to heal this disease. And they put all their eggs in that basket. And their faith, now watch this, their faith wasn't in God. Their faith was in a desired outcome. And when that outcome didn't take place, it didn't happen like they wished it would have happened, like they prayed that it would happen, they lost their faith. Because they said, I prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen. Or here, let's play like you're a student minister and you've got a, a kid in your student ministry and their parents are having trouble, the parents of that kid, and they're maybe going through a divorce and so the student minister calls the kid in and says, now listen, I know what's happening with your parents and it's a tough situation, but we believe God can do anything. We believe God's a God of miracles. We believe God can intervene in this situation. And, you, and the student minister says to that kid, you believe God can restore your parents' relationship? Absolutely. The kid says, I believe God can do anything. So the student minister says, we're going to pray. And not only are we going to pray, we're going to believe that God's going to restore this marriage. So the student minister prays, the kid prays, boy, their faith's up. They believe in that the relationship's going to be restored. Six months go by, the parents get divorced. And this, this student is devastated, and his faith is shot. Why? Because his faith, even though the intentions would have been right, it was misdirected faith. It was misguided faith. Instead of that student minister saying to that child, what we're going to do, we're praying for restoration. We're praying for reconciliation. We're praying for a miracle. We're putting it in God's hands, and we know God can do anything. But keep in mind, your parents have their own free will. See, that student minister had an opportunity to teach that student about more than just what he was, he was just giving that student a slice of the pie, not the whole pie. And he should have said to that student, listen, we're going to put this in God's hands. We're going to pray. Yes, we are believing for a miracle. But that student minister should have taken that one step farther and said, but even if the miracle doesn't happen, we're going to still trust God anyway. We can't just put our faith in a desired outcome. You see that student minister saying to that kid, God's going to restore this. The kid can't control that. It may be that one of the parents can't even control that. What that student minister should have done is said, we're going to trust God regardless of how this situation turns out. Or maybe here's a storm, a hurricane coming through. And so you pray over your house. I always pray over my house if there's going to be kind of hurricane storm. And I do believe, and I trust God to protect my house. But you know what? Even though I'm believing and trusting God to protect my house, that's not the ultimate of my faith. My faith is not ultimately and primarily in a desired outcome. My faith is in God himself. So a person prays over their house. God's not going to let this house flood, not going to let this house get hit with a hurricane. And the house floods and the roof falls off. And, and the house is, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. And the person's faith is shot. And the person says, man, I don't know what happened. I don't know what went wrong. I was trusting God. 
I'll tell you what went wrong. Your faith was in a desired outcome instead of being in God himself. What does the scripture say? Have faith in God. Not have faith in a desired outcome. Have faith in God. The hymn says, he's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And I encourage you today, don't put, yeah, we all have desired outcomes. We all know God can do anything. And we, we believe that God can. And we trust that he will if that's according to his will. But that can't be the highest our faith goes. We have to say, God, my faith is in you regardless of how this situation works out. Now, do you believe that? Say amen. You see, that what I've just said right in the last five minutes can change your whole life. And it can strengthen your faith because you have to have a faith in God. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were about to be thrown into that fiery furnace and they said to the king, they said, King, we believe that the God we serve is able to deliver us from your hand. We believe he's able to keep us from being thrown into that fiery furnace. But then they said these three words, but if not, even if he doesn't do it, even if the outcome is not as we have desired, even if we are fried in that fiery furnace, we will not bow down. We will not worship you. We're going to trust God no matter what the outcome is. And I'm saying to you today, friend, what we need in Christianity today and what we need in our individual lives today is a but if not kind of faith, a faith that says, I believe God can do anything, but even if he doesn't do what I wish he would, he's still God and I still trust him. And that's what we need to do. Let your cries for help, let that result in complete confidence in God regardless of the outcome. Now, let's take this one step further because in this case, the outcome was good, by the way. The outcome was fantastic. God intervened. The king wrote a new law. The king said, hey, here's the, here's the new deal. We're gonna set aside this 13th day of this particular month that was supposed to be for your extermination. And now here's the new law. All the Jews have perfect freedom to kill everybody who's trying to kill them. And there were thousands of people who were killed in Persia. It's interesting, at one point in this story, Haman had gotten so mad at Mordecai for not bowing down to him that he told his wife about it. And his wife said, Haman, here's what you need to do. Have a gallows built and have Mordecai hanged on the gallows. And so he built a huge gallows and that's what he intended to do. But when the king found out that Haman was trying to kill all the Jews and that Esther was part of that. It infuriated the king and the king had Haman hanged on the gallows that he had built to have Mordecai hanged on. What do we see in the book of Esther? We see God turning the tables. We see God taking what was meant for evil and turning it around for good. We see God getting the last word on a diabolical scheme and a diabolical plan. What does it say in Proverbs? He who digs a pit for somebody else to fall into will fall into that pit himself. And we see here Haman digging a pit to destroy Mordecai. No, Mordecai wasn't destroyed. In fact, at the end of the story, Mordecai took Haman's place. He became the number two man in Ahasuerus' kingdom and in the reign of the Persian domain. We see that the Jewish people who they had been, uh, you know, their life was under attack. We see them now, their lives are spared and they're killing the people under the king's order. 
who were going to be killing them. And so it's an amazing thing. In fact, it's so remarkable that the Jews, at God's command, implemented a feast to commemorate this. Remember, they cast the pur, P-U-R, the lots. God said, now what you need to do that I've turned the tables, you need to have a feast, the Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. In English, we would probably just say the Feast of Purim. And it happens every year in Israel in the middle of March. They'll be celebrating that. This week, one of the most exciting times to go to the Holy Land is in the middle of March during the Feast of Purim. Because this week, they'll be giving gifts. They'll be exchanging presents with each other. They'll be having celebrations. The children will be dressed up like we would, like here in America. Kids dress up on Halloween in different costumes. In Israel, they're dressing up like Mordecai, Haman, Esther, Ahasuerus. They're dressing up like this, and their faces are not seen. And the reason their faces are not seen, it's their way of saying, hey, in the book of Esther, God's name was not seen. God's face was not seen. God was not seen, but his hand was working behind the scenes, his hand of providence and protection and his hand of provision, sparing the lives of the Jewish people and turning the tables. And friend, it's a good time for me to say here, anytime you're going through something in your life where there has been a satanic, diabolical scheme to take you down and destroy your life, if you will trust God, if you will stay in the battle, if you will keep moving forward, God in your life will take what the enemy meant for evil and God will turn it around and God will bring good out of it. And those gallows that were built for your destruction, they'll never be used for you. You'll be spared and you'll move on and God will fulfill his purpose and God will fulfill his plan in your life. And that's what we see in the book of Esther, God turning the tables and God getting the last word. Now, as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about this and I thought, well, man, that should just be a great way to end the sermon right there, right? <laughs> God always gets the last word. I mean, for the Jewish people here, it was a happy ending. But there's one more statement I've got to make here. I can't just preach three quarters of the pie. I've got to make, I can't be like that student minister who said some things that were true, but he didn't say everything, and the kid's faith got rocked. So I want to make one final statement, and I'll make it quickly, and we'll end this, but I want, I want to make this today. When the outcome of a crisis is not what you had prayed for, In other words, the cancer wasn't healed. The relationship wasn't restored. Didn't happen. The the need wasn't met in the way you had hoped and prayed that it would be met. Remember this. You have an opportunity to glorify God in that disappointment. And this is, I have to preach this today because this is uh, what it takes for us to have a balanced faith. Now, just let me read this. Don't turn to it. But in John chapter 21, Jesus has just restored Peter after Peter's sin. He forgave him. He restored him. He put him back in the ministry. And so Jesus and Peter are having a conversation about what Peter's life is going to look like from this moment forward. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus said. Jesus says to Peter, John chapter 21, verse 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, now watch this, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. In other words, Peter, out there in your future, something's going to happen to you 
that you wish wouldn't happen. It will not be the desired outcome that you're praying for. Verse 19, this Jesus spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. Now, we know Peter was crucified. Church history tells us that he was crucified upside down in Rome. And yet, notice how the Scripture describes this. This Jesus spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. What is this last truth I'm trying to communicate today? When the outcome of a crisis is not what you had prayed for, the disease wasn't healed. The relationship wasn't restored. The problem wasn't solved as you wish it would have been solved. No, it didn't happen the way you wished it would have happened and the way you prayed that it would happen. Remember this. You have an opportunity to glorify God in that disappointment. And see, that's what the Bible is saying. Jesus said, when you get older, you're going to go places you don't want to go. It's not going to be good. It's going to be tough, Peter. Very next verse. By this. Jesus was talking about the death that Peter would die and in that death, how he would glorify God. You know, we don't think much about glorifying God in death. We look at death as defeat, it's finality, it's all over. From God's perspective, he said, well, that's how you might look at it as a human being. But from my perspective, remember, death's not the end of anything. If you're saved, death is just the transition. It's just an open door into the, to the world above. But I'm saying to you today, in your disappointment, if your situation is not turning out like you wish it would, you have an opportunity to glorify God in that. How, John? By trusting Him, by remaining faithful to Him, by keeping a positive attitude, by loving people, by not getting bitter, by just doing what God called you to do and let, let, the, chips fall, <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. What can you do about that? And if you'll trust God and if you'll move forward, you'll glorify Him even if your situation ends in a disappointment from your perspective, because we know that ultimately disappointments are God's appointments and he's going to work it all out for good one way or the other. Amen.